see how Psalm 39 and Psalm, um, beginning to see how Psalm 39 and Psalm 38 have a natural connection. If you remember last week in Psalm 38, we were talking about how David felt the piercing and the pressure in his life from the Lord because of his sin. And there was a moment in that, specifically in verses 13 and 14, where he decides that in the midst of his enemies, he's not going to hear, he's not going to speak. And I, and, and I think Psalm 39 is kind of a, going along with that, an extension of his, David's um, commitment to not speak or to not answer his enemies who are around him. And so last week we talked about Psalm 38 being a time where he's waiting for restoration. And so tonight in Psalm 39, I have titled it A Prayer for Restoration. So we want to read through Psalm 39, and then we want to see how David responds to this situation in life where he's pierced with the conviction of his own sin. He's been deserted by all of his friends. He has the, his enemies around him. And last week we talked about how Christ is a, we see Christ in that because he was deserted by his friends, surrounded by his enemies as well, and felt the weight and the guilt of sin, only it was not his, it was ours that he felt. And so he's, again, I think we see him in Psalm 39 being compassionate and understanding and faithful to us in our time of need like David is in in Psalm 39. So we'll read through Psalm 39 and then we want to work through it and notice a few things that come out of it. Psalm 39, to the choir master, to Jedithon, a psalm of David. I said, I will guard my ways that I may not sin with my tongue. I will guard my mouth with a muzzle so long as the wicked are in my presence. I was mute and silent. I held my peace to no avail, and my distress grew worse. My heart became hot within me. As I mused, the fire burned, and then I spoke with my tongue. O Lord, make me know the end and what is the measure of my days. Let me know how fleeting I am. Behold, you have made my days a few handbreadths, and my lifetime is as nothing before you. Surely all mankind stands as a mere breath. Surely a man goes about as a shadow. Surely for nothing they are in turmoil. Man heaps up wealth and does not know who will gather. And now, O Lord, for what do I wait? My hope is in you. Deliver me from all my transgressions. Do not make me the scorn of the fool. I am mute. I do not open my mouth, for it is you who have done it. Remove your stroke from me. I am spent by the hostility of your hand. When you discipline a man with rebukes for sin, you consume like a moth what is dear to him. Surely all mankind is a mere breath. Hear my prayer, O Lord, and give ear to my cry. Hold not your peace at my tears, for I am a sojourner with you, a guest like all my fathers. Look away from me that I may smile again before I depart and am no more. I titled this being a prayer of restoration, for restoration, because I believe that Psalm 39 is an overflow 
of Psalm 38. David, in Psalm 38, verses 13 and 14, resolved to, in the presence of his enemies, be like a deaf man, not hear, be like a mute man, and not open his mouth. He's not going to hear the taunts of his enemies. He's not going to respond to them. In Psalm 39, he puts it like this at the beginning. I said, I will guard my ways that I may not sin with my tongue. And it's, I'm reminded of the fact that how, how intimately connected um, all our ways are with our tongues. And you see that in Scripture, how out of the overflow of the heart is what the mouth says. And so often our lives, we really reveal who we are, what we value by the words that we say. And so David makes a vow, I'm going to guard my ways um, that I may not sin with my tongue. I will guard my mouth with a muzzle so long as the wicked are in my presence. And I think how, just right off the top, how applicable and helpful that is for us in so many ways. How easy it is for us to have a loose tongue when we have those that are around us that we disapprove of, that we deem as being wicked people. I mean, think of your, think of your favorite politician. Think of perhaps a friend, a neighbor, a coworker, somebody that when you get around them or when you think of them, it's very easy to be loose with your tongue regarding them and to express your disapproval of them. And David is wise in many ways to guard his tongue when he's in the presence of the wicked. We're reminded in Proverbs 4, 23, to guard your heart, for, for out of it is the overflow of life. And so he guards his tongue, he's guarding his heart, but in his quietness, when I was mute and silent, I held my peace to no avail, my distress grew worse, my heart became hot within me as I mused, the fire burned, and I spoke with my tongue. And this is one of the things I think that is helpful for us to learn from this psalm and to remember. It's that not as if when we go through hardship and not as if when we are being disciplined for our sin, which David was in 38 and which we see an element of that in 39 as well, that we have to keep silent. It's just that we need to really be careful about what it is that we do say. It's not when we're, when we're being disciplined for our sin, when there is hardship and trials in life that are going on around us, it's not as if we just have to keep silent. God does allow for us to come to him and to speak to him. It's just that we need to be really careful and guard our mouths as to what it is that we say. And I think what David gives to us here is a wonderful model for how we can appeal to the Lord in a genuine way, the cry of our heart, in times of difficulty, in times of hardship, especially when those who want to see us fall and would like to, see, would like to do harm to us, surrounding us, and being in a, in a season of uh, being disciplined by the Lord for our sin. And these are the things, this is what I want us to see in this psalm in verses 4 through 13. The first one we see in verses 4 through 6 is that even in his affliction, even in his discipline, he acknowledges God's sovereignty and his rule over all of life. You think about how helpful that is in times of difficulty. 
that all the seed, that whatever happens in our lives and seasons of difficulty that come, God is still the ruler yet over all of it. And you see because his, the first word that he says is, O Lord. This he gives away from the beginning who is occupying his thinking. He is being disciplined for his sin. We see that in verses 7 through 11. He has his enemies surrounding him, but his attention is not upon necessarily the Lord's discipline or what he's done wrong or those who are around him. His focus is on the Lord. He's looking to the Lord. He has a clear vision and a clear picture of who God is. And his first confession is that he acknowledges God's sovereignty and his rule over all of life. And he acknowledges how short his life is and how he doesn't know the number of days that he has. That's incredibly helpful for us. Take, when you just stop and take a moment, when you don't know when what day is going to be your last day? Would that change at all the way that you spend your time? Would it change at all the way that you view God? Would it change at all the things that you pray about? Would it change at all the way that you speak? I think it, it should. Oh Lord, make me know my end and what is the measure of my days. He doesn't know, but God knows, and he knows God knows. Behold, you have made my days a few handbreadths, and my lifetime is as nothing before you. Surely all mankind stands as a mere breath. Surely a man goes about as a shadow. Surely for nothing they are in turmoil. Man heaps up wealth and does not know who will gather. My life is short. I don't know when I'm going to go. And, if, and, and how foolish it is for us to spend our time, our time in this life trying to accumulate more stuff because on the day that you go, you don't take it with you, and then whose who's is it going to be? And how are they going to use it? And so David's wise in looking to the Lord and acknowledging God's sovereignty and his rule and the uncertainty that he has of knowing his days and his times. Secondly, we see in verses 7 through 11 that he ho his hope is in God's loving correction. And this is where, where we, what we learned last week from Psalm 38 really bleeds over into Psalm 39. Because David had been lamenting the, the conviction that he had been feeling and confessing it to the Lord for his sin. And in verses 7 through 11, we see him hope in God's loving correction. And now, O Lord, for what do I wait? My hope is in you. Deliver me from all my transgressions. Do not make me the scorn of the fool. I am mute. I do not open my mouth, for it is you who have done it. He knows that God is the one that is disciplining him. Remove your stroke from me. I am spent from the hostility of your hand. When you discipline a man with rebukes for sin, you consume like a moth what is dear to him. I love that part of Psalm 39 because it speaks so practically and well to how God um, disciplines us out of his love and corrects us, and it's easy to remember. When you rebuke a man with disciplines for sin, you consume like a moth what is dear to him. He's not, he doesn't respond like Proverbs 19.3. When a man's folly brings his way to ruin, his heart rages against the Lord. 
Isn't it interesting how we do that? We start to feel the consequences of our own stupidity and decisions, and we blame God. When a man's folly brings his way to ruin, his heart rages against the Lord. David doesn't do that. Instead, when he feels the weight of the discipline of God in his life with rebukes for sin, his hope is in God's loving correction. He says in verse 7, my hope is in you. Every single one of these sections, verses 4 through 6, O Lord, 7 through 11, O Lord, 12 and 13, O Lord, every single one of them, he's making it very clear and acknowledging that he sees his life being lived out before the presence of God. And so he acknowledges God's sovereignty and rule, and then he confesses his hope in God's loving correction. We see in verse 11, we're reminded that God purifies. When you discipline a man with rebukes for sin, you consume like a moth what is dear to him. And God's, God's goal in the life of his children is purification. As Charles Spurgeon said, his design is to consume our sin, not us. And that's good news for us. And then lastly, we see in verse 12 and 13, him looking to God for favor. Hear my prayer, O Lord, and give ear to my cry. Hold not your peace at my tears, for I am a sojourner with you, a guest like all my fathers. Look away from me that I may smile again before I depart and am no more. He's looking to God for his favor. I think about the way that David responds to what it is that God is bringing into his life. And this prayer, even if, though he's in the midst of hardship, is oriented towards God. God is at the center of his thinking. God is at the center of his praying. He acknowledges God's sovereignty and his rule over all things. His hope is in God's loving correction, and he's ultimately looking to God for, for favor. Hear my prayer, Lord, give ear to my cry, hold not your peace at my tears, for, am I, for I am a sojourner with you, a guest like all my fathers. David sees himself as a sojourner in this life, on this earth, as so many of the others did throughout the Old Testament. They had a picture that this life was not all that there was, that this world was not their home, and that they were looking forward to a better homeland. And I think about how that is so true for us, and that's what we have in common with them, because they had the hope in God's deliverance and in the coming Messiah, and we have our hope in the fact that God has already delivered us and has already sent the Messiah and how so much of this is true for us because of our identity and union with Christ. When he says, deliver me for all my transgressions, the Christian can say, I have been delivered from all my transgressions because I am rooted and found in Christ. When he says that I am a sojourner with you, I think of the Lord Jesus Christ and his sojourning on this world temporarily for his time and his redemptive work for us. 
And we have that in common with him. I think about how, he's, how he is always able to, to understand us in our condition, to relate to us because he has come and lived and dwelt among us. And so we have this, this one who is for us and understands our condition. We have the faithful and sympathetic high priest. He knows what it's like to feel the guilt and the weight of sin because he felt our guilt and weight of sin. He knows what it's like to be rejected by man because he was rejected by man. We have what a friend we have in Jesus. That that song is certainly true. David is, is crying out to God. You could really, because Jesus is the Lord, you could say in verse 4, Oh Jesus, make me know the end of my days and what is the measure of them. Oh Jesus, For what do I wait? My hope is in you. Hear my prayer, O Jesus, and give give ear to my cry. When Jesus came as Lord, he came to fulfill all the cries that preceded him as a cry to the Lord. And the Christian, we can certainly cry out to him in that way. We're reminded that this world isn't our home and that we can feel and experience the sympathy of of Christ for us as we sojourn through this life and await our ultimate union with him. And so this gives us a model for how we can pray. It gives us one who, it, it points us to one who is ultimately our hope and our redeemer in Christ. And it gives us the ability to see this passage in a way that points us to Christ and gives us a prayer for restoration. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the fact that you've given us a word that reminds us of our need for you and our dependence upon you. We thank you that you've given us a word that invites us to you in prayer. we know that we can approach the throne of grace boldly because the redemptive work of Christ. And when life squeezes and bears down on us in all the different ways that it does, even when it's squeezing and bearing down on us because of our own folly and sinfulness and choices that we make, you still invite us to come to you to confess to pray, to acknowledge your sovereignty, your goodness, to acknowledge that all true deliverance and forgiveness comes from you, and that you have us, you've given us a hope, and that you have shown us your favor. And so may we rejoice in those things, Father. Thank you for this time that we've had together tonight. We pray that you would be honored by the position of our hearts and the songs that we sing and the conversations that we have with one another tonight as well. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.